Well, if you would turn with me to the book of Ruth, one last Lord's Day as we now conclude our study in this book that the Lord has given us that we might better understand that Jesus indeed is our kinsman redeemer. As we've been walking through the book of Ruth together, I hope that you have learned, uh, that we have learned together a bit about what it means to walk by faith and not by sight, uh, about the the consequence of walking by sight and that path so often of disobedience and how we see the reward of walking by faith and what walking by faith looks like, the, the need to take steps of faith, to, to trust in the Lord, to understand there's times we need to, to stop and wait and be patient and be still and there's other times when we need to act and we need to step out and the way we discern those things is by trusting in the Lord, trusting in His Word, walking faithfully with Him day by day. As we've been walking through this book together, this book that began with a famine in the promised land, we now come to the fullness of what God has done and is doing through this story. This story of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi and now of the child that is born, Obed. And so we're going to conclude our study by picking up in chapter 4, verse 13 and reading to the end of chapter 4. And out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, if you would stand with me as I read God's word for us this Lord's day. And this is what the holy word of God says. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may name be renowned in Israel he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons and has given birth to him then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying a son has been born to Naomi and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenanab. Amenanab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David you would pray with me lord i pray as we spend a few moments in these closing verses of ruth that you would bring to fruition uh, those things that we have studied and considered lord that you would help us each today to understand what it looks like to truly walk by faith to truly trust in jesus who is our kinsman redeemer we ask this in christ's name amen you may be seated. I mentioned a few weeks ago of some engagement fails. I thought I'd share this morning a few gender reveal fails. That has become the, the trend in recent years. Uh, years ago when you were having a baby and it was going to be a boy or a girl, you'd just tell people it's a boy, it's a girl. But, but now those things have become uh, much more involved and 
uh, much more planning is involved in them. And so you've probably been to these gender reveal parties where uh, perhaps the couple will cut a cake. And when they open up the cake, it'll show it's blue or pink to let you know if it's going to be a boy or a girl. Or, or maybe they'll pop a balloon and confetti will come out. And if it's blue or pink, it tells you if it's going to be a boy or a girl. But uh, these things seem a bit mundane for some. They've sought to go to the extreme. And so I, I was reading this week about some gender reveals that didn't go so well. Uh, one was a dad-to-be who was going to reveal his child's gender by uh, kicking a special football they'd had made. Uh, and inside it was this explosive powder that would show uh, it was pink that it was a girl. And so he reared back and went to kick it and didn't consider uh, that it was essentially like kicking a piece of concrete. And uh, as he kicked it and it exploded, uh, so did his ankle. And he broke his ankle in the process. Uh, that, though, fails in comparison to this. A Louisiana couple planned to reveal their baby's gender by filling a watermelon full of blue jello. And how would they shatter that watermelon, you might ask? Well, of course, they would try to put it in the mouth of an alligator. And so, as the husband tried to put it in the mouth of the alligator, you can imagine, he nearly lost his arm. Uh, the alligator did chomp down on the watermelon, did show the blue jello, and then did charge after their family and friends who had gathered there for this reveal. Uh, but these things weren't nearly as costly as one gender reveal that you may have heard about in the news just a couple of years ago. It happened there in Arizona. There was an off-duty border patrol agent who decided they would set off fireworks, and those fireworks would reveal, you know, the color of the fireworks would reveal the gender of their child. They did not consider how dry the Arizona grasslands were when they set them off. Uh, they sparked a fire that eventually caused $8 million worth of damage and required 800 firefighters to get it under control. Well, as we come to the end of the book of Ruth, uh, we come to a gender reveal. And it is rather mundane considering these others. There's no exploding watermelons with jello. There's no fireworks being set off. Uh, there's really nothing exciting here. There's something rather ordinary and rather unremarkable about this announcement in verse 13. That Boaz and Ruth are married that the Lord gives them a child, and that she bears a son. And yet this son, this ordinary birth, would be a part of an extraordinary plan that God has been putting together throughout salvation history. We started in the book of Ruth with a famine, and now we come to a point of fullness. Uh, a point where we see God's plans coming to fruition, where we can step back and see the big picture of what God has been doing since the very first verse of this book now to the last verse of this book. And so as we continue to study this book, as we conclude today, I want us to conclude by asking again this question that we've been asking all through our study. How do we walk by faith? What does it look like to truly trust in the Lord and to put our faith in Him? How can we learn from these closing verses of Ruth's story about what it looks like in our lives today to walk by faith? So we'll begin with point one there in your outline. How do we walk by faith? And we begin by believing that God uses ordinary events for His glory. He uses ordinary events for His glory. Uh, the book of Ruth is filled 
with ordinary events. Uh, there's farming and there's harvesting. <coughs> there's the loss of loved ones. There's worry and concern and anxiety about finances and about provision. We are able to relate to this book because it's so relatable. These are ordinary, everyday events that happen in the pages of Ruth and in the pages of our lives. In fact, as we walk back through this book, consider there's, there's no miracles in the book of Ruth. There's no extraordinary events. There's no hand of God reaching down and, and bending the natural laws for something miraculously to come about. There's no prof prophetic visions. There's no angelic revelations. Through these ordinary events in everyday life, we see here in Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, the hand of God at work guiding them, not through extraordinary ways, but through very ordinary means. And we continue to see that as we come to these closing verses. Look there at verse 13. The writer tells us, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Now consider for a moment how this came to be. We started out our study in chapter 1 there. And in chapter 1, we found Ruth was being married to, to someone else. And as she goes into that union, her husband dies. And then her mother-in-law is going to go back to the land of Judah. And they start out in this journey together. But somewhere along the way, her mother-in-law tells her to go and return to Moab, to return to her family, to return to her false gods. And yet Ruth decides to go to Bethlehem. Why does she decide that? There's nothing recorded in the book of Ruth about some angelic vision. Gabriel doesn't come to her in a dream. She doesn't look around for signs and receive a sign from the Lord. No, what Ruth does is simply steps out in faith, trusting in the God of Israel, trusting in her newfound faith that, that God will indeed provide for her. She places her trust in the Lord. And then we come to chapter 2. <clears throat> and in chapter 2 we find that, that Ruth and Naomi are hungry. And so... Ruth goes out to the fields and she gleans among the reapers and she brings back to her mother-in-law that this abundance of provision. Now, how did she get that abundance of provision? Now, this was no miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 like we see in Matthew 14 where she had just a little bit of grain and, and God multiplied it. Now, this is no miracle like we see in 1 Kings 17 where, where the widow has that, that, that jar and that jug, that, that grain and that oil, and, and God continues to fill them up for her. No, through rather ordinary means, God gives her favor in the eyes of Boaz, and he gives her this grain and sends her back with it. And God provides through these ordinary ways. And then we come to chapter 3. Naomi suggests a plan to Ruth for her and Boaz to be engaged. We talked about how uh, this was a risky plan, how Naomi may not have had the, the most uh, pure intentions at heart when she suggested this plan to her daughter-in-law. And yet we see how God protects Ruth and Boaz. And how does he protect them in that situation that could have gone so terribly wrong? Again, there's no visit from an angel that night. That there's no vision that occurs. There's no prophet screaming at the threshing floor for them to be pure and to walk in integrity. No, Boaz and Ruth 
are walking by faith, trusting in the Lord, and seeking to obey His commands. And then we come here to chapter 4. A plan is made at a gate. And again, no prophets, no visions, no miracles, no bending of natural laws, no a deal is made between two people, a shoe is thrown, as was customary. And we see these plans moving forward. These plans of Boaz, these plans of Ruth, but even more so, these plans of God. And so that brings us then here to verse 13 where Boaz and Ruth are now married. The scripture tells us that he and her come together and the Lord gives them conception and they bear a son. Now you certainly can argue here that now we have a miracle. I mean, Ruth, from all indications, was barren, was unable to have a child up to this point. The text is very clear that the Lord gives her this son. He gives her the son through very natural, ordinary means and ways. The Lord moves here as he had been moving since the opening verses of the book of Ruth. Now you'll recall back in chapter 2 where it says that, that Ruth just happened to be in the fields of Boaz. She happened to be there because God's hand designed it that way, because God was guiding her there, because God was sovereign over all of these events. And so this theme we see from the beginning to the end of the book of Ruth is that God is sovereign throughout everything that's taking place. His hand is guiding throughout everything that's taking place. But as he does that, he does it through very ordinary, common means and ways. So why is that important to us today? Well, it's important because God still uses very common and ordinary means and ways for his glory. We need to remember this because we seem to be a people who are so often bent on looking for the miraculous, who are so often leaning in towards looking for signs and looking for wonders. And God has already given us the greatest sign and the greatest wonder that we could ever seek after in his son, Jesus Christ. And you remember when the, the religious leaders came to Jesus and, and they asked him for signs and wonders, how he responded to them. He, he said they were wicked. They had the greatest sign and wonder in front of them in Christ, and yet they refused to see it. And if we're not careful, so often we as a people aren't that different than those religious leaders. We ignore that which God has already revealed to us through the wonder of His Word. And we go out seeking signs and miracles. And we go looking for God to, to show us something when He's already shown us something. See, we have in front of us exactly what we need in order to walk by faith. We have the Word of God. We don't need a sign to find a direction. We need the Scriptures. And God has given those freely to us. That's why the psalmist writes in Psalm 119, verse 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And so if you find yourself this morning in a place where, where you're seeking discernment, where you're seeking direction, where you're trying to understand, God, which way should I go? What should I do? How should I respond to the situation I'm in? And perhaps you're, you're tempted to ask God to, to show you a sign. 
to do something out of the ordinary, I'd ask you to consider the pages of the book of Ruth. Whereas we've studied them and looked at them, we see very ordinary lives and very ordinary ways that the hand of God is working and moving and orchestrating things for His glory. God uses very ordinary events every day in our lives, just as He used ordinary events every day in the life of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. The second point for us to consider then, as we consider what it means to walk by faith, is this. How do we walk by faith? We trust that God is sovereign and good all the time. God is sovereign and good all the time. There's a common saying that you may have heard and even repeated yourself. uh, God is good all, all the time. It's a catchy phrase. But do we really believe it? It's something easy for us to say and repeat. The question is, do we really trust that God is good and that He is good all the time? That all the time He is good. And not only good, He is sovereign. As we've walked through this book together, we've come to that question in the life of Naomi. As you'll recall, we saw Naomi early in this book questioning the goodness of God. And in fact, here in verse 14, there's a mention of the women saying to Naomi, and the only other mention we have of the women, this group of women, is back in Ruth chapter 1, verse 19. Turn a page over there, if you will. We see there in Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 19, that Ruth and Naomi have now come there to Bethlehem. And as they come to Bethlehem, the the whole town is stirred because of them. And then we read there, the women said, said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has tested, testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity on me. We see in this passage very clearly as these women come out to Naomi, she understands that God is sovereign. She understands that God is sovereign over the events of her life. That, that there's no happenstance that brings her there. That there's no chance that brings her there. That, that she's in the place she's in because of the sovereign hand of God. But she wrongly believes that hand is against her. She believes that God is not good. She she doesn't even consider that her own sin may have led to her suffering and calamity. That her lack of trust in God that took her to the land of Moab, this wicked place in, in which she abandoned the fields of God, that they may have had something to do with the situation she found herself in. No, she simply believes that the hand of God is against her. And she refuses to see at that point in her suffering how God can be good in the midst of suffering. I believe when we asked that question and talked about this, we went back to the closing verses in Genesis 50. It's such a picture that we see there of God's sovereignty and God's goodness. You remember those closing verses in Genesis 50 where 
Joseph stands there and he encounters his brothers, his brothers who had sold him into slavery, his brothers who just threw him into a pit. Uh, that decision led to so much suffering in Joseph's life where he would be wrongly imprisoned and so many awful things would happen to him. And yet now he's at a point where God has put him in a position where, where he is now able to, to save his family. And his father's died and his brothers are convinced that he's going to put them to death now. And we find Joseph in that moment looking at his brothers and looking at his suffering and saying this, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people would be kept alive as they are today. Joseph was able to see in the midst of his suffering the goodness of God. As we come to the opening chapter there in Ruth, Naomi is unable to see the goodness of God. But now as we come to chapter 4, we find that Naomi's circumstances have changed quite a bit. Notice again in verse 14, these, these same women who initially had come out to Naomi, who Naomi had said to these women, God's hand's against me. I'm bitter towards God. Now notice these women are singing praises to God. They are giving blessing to Naomi. They say, the Lord has not left you, Naomi. Even though Naomi had sought to abandon the Lord's fields, the Lord never left Naomi. He was faithful even when she lacked faith. Even though she had abandoned the promised land, these women are reminding her that God never abandoned her. Even when she stayed in Moab and, and gave her sons over to be married to these Moabites, something that God had strictly forbidden, even though she, she disobeyed God, God had not abandoned Naomi. He didn't abandon her even when she shook her fist at God and said, this is all your fault. These women are reminding her that the Lord has not left her, that the Lord has given her a redeemer and a restorer. And that God had a plan. And all the while, while Naomi was suffering, while she was shaking her fist at God, that, that God's plan was unfolding, that He was at work, that, that He was guiding her suffering and situation to bring about a plan and to bring about the fruition of His plan that a child would be born to Ruth and Boaz. And this child would be considered the redeemer of Naomi. He, he would be the one who would take over Elimelech's fields. He would be the one who would care for his grandmother. He would be her provider. And so we come then to verse 16 there. And the writer tells us that, that Naomi took the child and, and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And there's such a, a picture there of how she's moved from hopelessness to hope. You know, Naomi believed that she went away full and came back empty, but what God is showing her here is that she went away empty and now she is truly full. God has restored. God has redeemed. I think what we see here is someone who had struggled greatly to trust in the Lord is now learning to trust in the Lord. And now through her circumstances, learning that God indeed is sovereign and He is good all of the time. And friends, this is a challenge for us. 
It's a challenge, especially when hard times come our way. And it's a challenge when we find ourselves in situations that we did not expect and, and when life just doesn't turn out the way we thought it would. I was confident back in 2004 that God was calling Sandy and I to go to Eastern Europe as missionaries. I truly believed, and in my heart, as best I could see, the plans and the hand of God at work, I believed he was leading us to, um, <coughs> excuse me, to become missionaries with the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. We had started the application process. We were uh, pretty far along into it. We were already in contact with teams in Eastern Europe. We had told family and friends we, we were making our plans to go to the other side of the globe and share the gospel. And it made sense to us. Not, not many people wanted to do this. People weren't standing in line for this. God had put us in a situation where we had a heart and a desire and the ability to go. And so I believe that's what God was leading us to do. Until I got a phone call one day from our candidate consultant letting us know that, that we weren't going to be able to go. I had failed to make the medical clearance. I have a kidney disease. And while at that time, my kidney function was perfectly normal. Uh, it was too risky for their doctors, they felt, to send me to the other side of the world and what could happen down the road. And I remember struggling with that decision. I remember trusting in the sovereignty of God, but really questioning God, well, what is good about this? I really felt strongly in my heart that this is what we were going to do. This is where we needed to go. I didn't understand why God didn't allow us to go to Eastern Europe until about 18 months later, uh, 18 months later, Sandy and I would be sitting in a hospital room at Vanderbilt uh, University Medical Center, and we had been taken there, we had gone there uh, quickly after the birth of our fourth child, Caroline, and she was born there in Bowling Green, Kentucky, within hours she was rushed to Vanderbilt, and the days that would follow, we would have several diagnoses that we had no idea were coming our way, we would find out she has a rare genetic syndrome, we would find out she would struggle to eat and struggle with so many other things. And I remember sitting in that hospital room and, and just considering for a moment the situation we found ourselves in and thinking about all the places that we had desired to go on the other side of the world and thinking about what it would have been to be there when our daughter was born and to be in one of the greatest medical facilities for children in the world and consider that likely would not have been the case. And that perhaps our daughter would not have made it more than a few days had she been born somewhere else. And in that moment when God allowed me to see just a glimpse of the big picture, I understood that it was a good thing for God to say no to us about the IMD. That, that it was a good thing that he kept us home. And that wouldn't be the last time I would struggle with God's sovereignty and God's goodness, there would be a lot of other moments and a lot of other hospital rooms there with my daughter and with my wife and my family. And there will be more in the future where I'll struggle to understand in the midst of suffering God's sovereignty and His goodness. But the walk of faith is a walk where we struggle with these things. And there are times in our struggle where God may give us a glimpse of in a hospital room of the big picture where we may understand
for a moment why God has said no. Where we may understand for a moment why God has allowed suffering to come in our lives. And there may be other times where that moment may not come this side of eternity. And so God calls us not just to trust in Him, hoping those moments might come, but to trust in Him in light of what His Word says about Him. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 tells us that we know for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Friends, God is good. All the time. And all the time, He is truly good. And when you open up and see that the big picture, that the big plan of what is unfolding for us in the Scripture, when, when we bury ourselves in the study of the Word, we see over and over and over again the goodness of God. And we learn that in the midst of our suffering and our trials and our sicknesses and our losses and the death of loved ones and tragedies all around us, we learn in the midst of those things to anchor our souls in the Word where He reminds us over and over and over again that He is sovereign, that He is in control, and that He is good all of the time. And all of the time, He is good. As we see this in the pages of Ruth, we are reminded of this picture where Naomi sits with this child on her lap, with this blessing in front of her. Not once she ever expected to come. If you remember the words she said early in the book of Ruth, she, she sees so no prospects, no possibilities that there would ever be this type of blessing in her life. But God has a way of doing that which we do not expect and bringing blessing our way in ways we never saw coming. And that's what she's able to see. Which brings us to this third and final point there in front of you this morning. How do we walk by faith? We walk by leaving a legacy that will bless generations to come. We leave a legacy that will bless generations to come. And not just any legacy. A legacy of faith. Notice now how these women, they come around Naomi and they, they, they are blessing her and they, they give this child a name. Now this is not ordinary at all. Normally it would be the, the father, the mother that would name the child. But now the, the, the women of this community are naming the child. It's as if the women are able to put together the pieces and able to see here the hand of God at work now. They're able to see from the moment that Naomi returned and now Naomi sitting with this child in her lap how, how God's plan has unfolded. And they give this child a name, Obed. And we know very little about Obed and we know that his name means to serve and we see that he would serve a great purpose in the plan of God now, we don't know much about Obed we, we obviously know a lot about his parents and we know about how he came to be and other than that we see his name listed in genealogies throughout the word of God but then we find out a lot of things we, we know more about his son Jesse and we know even more about his grandson, David. 
David, who would be that great king over Israel, his life, his legacy, his faithfulness, and his failures would fill the pages of Old Testament history. His songs, his prayers, his laments would fill the pages of the psalms that we read and that we sing. And yet David would not be the greatest king. David would be the one who would pave the way for an even greater king that would come. Our king, our Lord Jesus. I mean, you consider the significance of this genealogy. And it's as if the, the plane takes off and, and as it goes up above the ground, we're able to see a bigger picture. Or if you even zoom out beyond that, an even greater picture. We're able to see now the hand of God at work in Ruth's life, in Boaz's life, in Naomi's life, and how that work now will echo through the pages of eternity. The, the book of Ruth concludes and ends with a genealogy. It's a reminder to us that this story isn't just about Ruth and it's not just about Boaz and it's not just about Naomi. It's not just about Obed. That this is God's story. That this is God's redemptive story. And He's showing us how He redeems this family and ultimately He's pointing us towards the great Redeemer of Jesus Christ. He takes us from a family who are looking for bread all the way to the one that would pave the way for the bread of life, that the Word to come. He's showing us how He uses these ordinary means in extraordinary ways for His glory. And how this decision, and these decisions that Ruth made, and Boaz made, and even Naomi made, how, how God uses each of these decisions for His glory and for His plan. And He shows us the legacy of faith that comes from a man and woman on a threshing floor who walk in faith and purity and integrity and how that purity and integrity is blessed by God. He's showing us through these pages how God blesses those who walk by faith and how God calls us this morning to trust in Him and to walk in faith. He's reminding us that as much as Ruth and Boaz were blessed in their walk of faith, that even at this moment, they didn't see the big picture. They had no idea what was coming from this line. And even as the writer of Ruth pens these words and, and ends pointing us towards David, that writer doesn't even fully understand the greatness of what is to come from David's line. But you and I this morning understand because God has given us the full revelation of His Word. We understand that from the house of David, a son would be born perfectly, truly man and perfectly, truly God. Jesus Christ, our Messiah. We understand that Jesus would live on this earth and yet He would commit no sin. We understand that He would go to the cross and He would die there. Not because of His sin, but because of our sin. That He would die as a substitution. That He would die in our place. That, that His death would appease the wrath of God on our behalf. We understand that this Jesus who would go to that cross has called us today at Bloomfield Baptist Church to repent and to trust in Him. And to walk by faith. Just like Ruth and 
Boaz and Naomi and others in the pages of this book we've studied were called, we too today are called to walk by faith. And just as he, he didn't give them signs and wonders and work through miraculous ways, just in everyday, ordinary decisions, they were called to trust in him. And friends, that's the call for you and I today. Our call is to trust in God. To stop walking in the flesh and walking by sight. To put our faith in Christ and to trust in Him. Jesus says if we will confess Him as Lord and if we will believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, that we'll be saved. Friends, that's the first step of faith. It's trusting that the Word of God is true. It's trusting that Jesus indeed did die on that cross for our sins. And it's trusting that as we repent and put our faith and our hope and our trust in Him, that He will be our kinsman redeemer. And that He'll save us from our sins. And that walk of faith continues day in and day out with daily, ordinary, mundane decisions to trust in God and to follow Him. And so today, on this ordinary day in April, will you trust in Him? Will you surrender your life to Him? Will you put your full faith and your full hope in Jesus Christ? That's the question for us to consider as we close our study in the book of Ruth. If you would, pray with me. Father, I pray that through the work of Your Holy Spirit that You would make abundantly clear the step that every person here needs to take this morning. Lord, if there's any here who's yet to surrender their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, who's yet to confess Christ as Lord, who's yet to believe in their heart that You did indeed raise Jesus from the dead, that He did die on the cross for their sins, Lord, I pray that You would do a work that none of the rest of us could ever do, that You would help them to see the wonders of the Gospel, that You would help them to respond in faith and belief and repentance. Lord, for others who have responded that way in the past, perhaps today, that they are struggling with a decision, that they're struggling with their faith, they're struggling with what decision to make or what path to take, Lord, I pray that You would help to guide them through Your Holy Spirit to, to walk by faith and to trust in You. Lord, there may be a number of people here this morning who, who don't feel their lives are that extraordinary, who don't feel like they're anything special. Lord, would You remind them that, that You use ordinary people and ordinary events in extraordinary ways. Would You remind all of us, Lord, that that, that we have an opportunity today to leave a legacy of faith to those who come behind us. Those we may never know, but Lord, who are a part of Your redemptive plan. Would You help us, Lord, today to trust in You and walk by faith. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.